This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And this is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, the naval tradition of writing the first ship log of a new year in verse. A pair of retired John Brown University professors have collected some of the original poems written by young soldiers during World War II. That's in about 20 minutes on Ozarks at Large. First... Ground is broken in Bentonville to celebrate construction of the Alice Walton School of Medicine. Founded by Alice Walton, the school will offer a conventional medical education that integrates whole health practices. Ozarks at Largest Jacqueline Froelich attended Thursday's groundbreaking. Faculty and staff, accompanied by medical school founder Alice Walton, all holding silver shovels posed for photographers, while a fleet of earth-moving excavators worked in the distance. Alice, you've got to put that shovel in the dirt. We're, t- we're taller than one. That's right. Let's do it. Let's do it. The Alice Walton School of Medicine will offer a conventional medical education embedded in patient-centered whole health practices. Students who complete the four-year program will graduate with a Doctor of Medicine degree. Founder and philanthropist Alice Walton told attendees this groundbreaking for her is deeply emotional and meaningful. I'm committed to health transformation in order to improve lives. We need better health, lower costs, and support for our health care givers. Patients need to be activated as stewards of their own health. Medical students will be trained in both allopathic medicine as well as integrative medicine, holistic medicine, to help patients manage their health, as well as fatigue, anxiety, and pain, the first medical school curriculum like it in the U.S. We have quality care providers that are doing a great job, but we need a new approach, one that is proactive and connects patients, mental, physical, social, and emotional health. Walton says the new medical school will make Northwest Arkansas a world-class destination for health and well-being. The concept for this school was introduced in 2021 as the Whole Health School of Medicine. The name later changed to emphasize both the founder and core conventional medical curriculum. Walter Harris, who most recently served as Senior Vice President of Administration and Finance, at the Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine in Pasadena, California, has been hired as president of healthcare transformation. It's taking traditional medicine and turning it around. For example, if we have a patient come into an ER, their condition may not warrant a visit to the ER. So we want to create upstream services to figure out what's going on with a patient by learning the story of a patient. Our school is going to teach the doctors themselves how to understand themselves. So when they come out of medical school, they can teach the community and patients within it how to understand their health and take control of themselves. He says the Alice Walton School of Medicine will accommodate students from all socioeconomic backgrounds seeking whole health vocations. And so we want to have students from across the country with a passion for looking outside of the norms. You know, it's, it's like stepping outside of the box but staying inside the rules in some sort of way, but finding a way to take care of patients where we understand the storylines behind them. And so any student with a passion that's where we start first. Yes, the grades make a, make a difference. Their, their, their ability to be great scientists and clinicians make a difference. But their passion for people is the foremost requirement that we have. 
Sharmela Makita, MD's founding dean and CEO. She previously served as the department chair of obstetrics and gynecology and women's health and professor of gynecologic oncology at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. She frequently cited the acronym for the Alice Walton School of Medicine as awesome during her remarks. Our medical school will be a place of innovation and a bridge to the future. Within an environment of compassionate and inclusive medical education for our students. Awesome will offer a four year medical degree program that builds upon a traditional medical school curriculum to include the humanities and the arts. And this is in order for our students to be able to better understand and address the social determinants of health, to learn resiliency, and ultimately provide the quality care that our diverse community deserves and needs. We all deserve access to quality health care, and we are committed to working together with our communities across this great state of Arkansas in order to create a health care system with dedicated physicians and providers and care teams who will improve the health and wellness of our people. The Arkansas-based firm Polk Stanley Wilcox are lead architects for the 154,000-square-foot school, which will interconnect with Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art Campus and Nature Trail System along J Street. The four-level facility, described as a transformational academic campus, will feature large learning halls, small group meeting rooms, a library, clinical teaching spaces, administrative offices, a student lounge, theater, recreation, and wellness facilities, and more. Uh, my name is Wesley Walls, and I'm a principal with Polk Stanley Wilcox Architects, and my role on this project was uh, as design principal. Uh, you know, Alice talks a lot about the integration of art and nature into health and well-being, and so from the very beginning, we thought about how the building could sort of grow out of the ground and become an abstraction of Ozark geology as an extension of the park. And so the park, the Crystal Bridges Park, literally extends onto the roof of the building. Uh, this idea that it's, it's an abstraction of an Ozark bluff shelter, and I don't know if you've seen some of those in the Ozarks, but that's really, if you look at the, the front of the building, that's really the inspiration for it, to, to provide a welcoming front porch to the community. And so from the community side, it pre presents itself as a pretty modern you know, place of healthcare education. The medical school's landscape won't be decorative, but rather serve as a functional Ozarks ecosystem reflecting the passage of seasons with native woodlands and meadows, native perennial and medicinal plants, and farm plots for foraging, outdoor classrooms, event lawns, a rooftop terrace, balconies, and an amphitheater will draw students, faculty, and visitors outdoors. Addressing the crowd, Simon Davis with Studio OSD elaborated. As designers, this is a dream project, an opportunity to, to work on behalf of a visionary client, uh, transforming the lives of many. Uh, Alice has spoken of the need for a new approach to healthcare and an ambition to provide a revolutionary model of wellness and education. The design of the landscape for Awesome, we believe that health and wellness is about harnessing the power of nature, the power of art, and the power of community. Speaking after the ceremony, Davis said the landscape will honor and reveal fundamental truths about health, the need for nature, the need for each other, and the need for healthy ecosystems in which all can thrive. I think the, one of the things that's exceptional about this project and the whole health model as a whole is its inclusivity of 
the broader context, right? So how can we be healthy in more than just kind of the, the conventional way? And I think that for the design of the landscape, that involves providing opportunities to use your mind and your body in a way that stimulates them and keeps them healthy and active. So, you know, it, it offers everything from kind of deliberate, you know, harvesting of food to kind of just uh, recreation, a chance to kind of reflect and, and restore the mind. Currently, the Alice Walton School of Medicine is seeking programmatic and institutional accreditation with the goal of welcoming an inaugural class in 2025, while a growing number of conventional medical schools incorporate integrative health electives this medical school will place integrative medical curriculum along with allopathic coursework at the center. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Ahead this hour, two familiar podcasting voices in Northwest Arkansas sit down to talk with each other. I'm curious to know because I know a lot of people struggle in this area and it's like, well, what, what words should I use? What have you said and what, what is acceptable in the community mm-hmm. uh, that you're finding? So this is part of the conversation I had with Ro okay. uh, on her podcast. Okay. We talked about this. So it's complicated, right? <laughs> I, I, I want to start with by saying that it's complicated. And yeah. I also want to start by saying that I am not the sole representative of the Latinx community. Oh, oh I got you. And I'm just like I'm not the sole at representative of all black people. <laughs> That's for I, sure. Before, I get so. the, before we get the trolls up in here. Randy Wilburn of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast and Irvin Camacho from the District 3 podcast talking to each other later on today's show. Also, right yes. now, yes, we're fundraising. That's true. We are. Uh, we are in the midst of our spring fundraiser. Uh, you will hear folks tomorrow live on the air starting at 6 a.m. with our colleague Daniel Carruth. We will be um, asking you to help us do what we do day in and day out here at KUAF and with Ozarks at Large. But you know what? You can beat the rush and you can contribute right now. We have condensed the traditional on-air fundraiser down to three days. Just three days. We would like to hit that 80,000 goal by the end of Friday. Good news is, um, by 9 o'clock this morning, mm-hmm. we had moved past $24,000. That's right, yes. So we, thanks to uh, thanks in part to our friends Joel and Lynn Carver in Springdale, we have uh, passed $24,000. I'd love to see us get to 30000 by the end of the day. There's two pretty easy ways to do that. One is you can go online to support KUAF.com. Fill out just a little bit of information. You can become a new donor. You can become a sustaining member. Whichever way you see fit, take care of that. You can also send us a check to KUAF at 9 South School Avenue, Fayetteville, Arkansas, 72701. Closing out Walton Arts Center's Starlight Jazz Club Series is the Brianna Thomas Sextet, Friday, April 7th at 7.30 p.m. With the soprano voice that scats, swoons, and croons, Brianna Thomas moves the material into the funky soul and R&B worlds. Tickets available at waltonartscenter.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large does not exist only on your radio. That's right. One of the ways that you can keep up with what we do Every weekday here on Ozarks at Large is by subscribing to the Ozarks at Large newsletter. You can find that on our website, KUAF.com, and you can get that in your inbox every morning. I got mine in my inbox this morning, and there's yesterday's story from Daniel Carruth about Arkansas University's Bracing for the Enrollment Cliff, information about the tornado that hit Friday in central Arkansas, how to become a business member. But it's not just what was on yesterday. Mm -hmm. There are all these tabs like... Why are schools considering four-day weeks in Arkansas? Uh, the conversation we had with Sylvia Pajoli, and much more. That's right. You can get free. all of that for free. 
Free. In your inbox every day. Breakfast, they say, is the most important meal of the day. And Morning Edition brings you the most important news of the day. Yo, Chris, what is a yo-yo car sale? And also stories like that. We're asking the tough questions. So if I'm a Beyonce fan, what is the process of getting a ticket? We take the world as it comes, and you can come along with us on Morning Edition from NPR News. And you can hear all the news you need every weekday from 5 to 9 a.m. on Morning Edition on 91.3 KUAF. A package of criminal justice legislation made its way out of the Arkansas Senate yesterday. SB 495, also known as the Protect Arkansas Act, would require people convicted of violent crimes to serve longer sentences before they're eligible to be released on parole. The bill has the support of Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders and was presented in the Senate by Republican Senator Ben Gilmore, who said the bill would make Arkansas safer. It will hold violent, repeat criminals accountable while also doing all of that, while also providing for avenues for these inmates to better themselves and be ready to uh, get out and, and be productive citizens in our society. Democratic Senator Clark Tucker spoke against the legislation. He said crime is a problem in Arkansas and violent criminals should spend time in prison, but he said he didn't feel the bill would help lower crime rates. He said similar states have tried imposing longer sentences with little success. Uh, The number one deterrence of crime is not the length of incarceration, but rather the certainty of punishment. And the example that we've heard in committee and that I think is a good example is if I'm speeding down the highway, what's more likely to deter me from speeding? The knowledge that a state trooper is on the road or the knowledge that the fee for my ticket will go up? The bill passed by a vote of 29 to 5, with Democratic Senator Reginald Murdoch voting present. Later in the day, Tucker's bill, SB 469, nudging law enforcement to apply for more grants to study Arkansas's low arrest rates for violent crimes, passed the Senate. A possible constitutional amendment to expand lottery scholarships in Arkansas one step closer to being on the 2024 ballot. The measure, which would allow lottery scholarships for use at vocational and technical schools, advanced out of the House State Agencies and Governmental Affairs Committee yesterday, now moves to the full House. If on the ballot and approved by voters in 2024, the new rule would take effect in 2025. We'll have more about possible amendments referred to voters in the next election cycle on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, is continuing to work to clean up after the tornadoes in central Arkansas last week. President Joe Biden approved a major disaster declaration on Sunday, giving federal aid to the tornado recovery efforts. FEMA official Sherman Gillums Jr. says more members of the organization will be coming to Arkansas. There are disaster survivor assistance teams they're canvassing the neighborhood. You're going to see them wearing FEMA gear. They may have clipboards uh, in their hand, but they're there to meet the families and those who are finding their first step toward recovery where they are. And I think that's the best way to ascertain how likely uh, it's going to take people to recover. Uh, but we're talking about at the individual and the community level. Gillums said the organization hopes to move quickly to help people find shelters and use insurance to compensate for their damaged property. He said he hopes people in Arkansas will prepare for the next disaster by making a plan. People can go to disasterassistance.gov 
to find FEMA resources to help rebuild. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is allowing state employees affected by the Friday tornado to take paid leave to deal with damage and injuries caused by the storm. And the National Weather Service is continuing to watch a storm system expected to deliver showers and thunderstorms, especially overnight to our region. There is an 80 percent chance of rain, possibly thunderstorms throughout the evening. As much as a half inch of rain could fall before sunrise tomorrow. Southeast Oklahoma and northwest Arkansas are at the greatest risk of severe weather late into tonight. And the forecast is responsible for the cancellation of tonight's Arkansas-Arkansas State baseball game. The Razorbacks will next play Thursday night at Mississippi. The Walton Family Foundation launched its Connection Hub this past week. The Hub is a two-year pilot program with the goal of helping Arkansas 501c3 organizations get federal funding. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports. The Connection Hub is meant to be a one-stop shop for Arkansas nonprofits. Over the next two years, some of the staff working at organizations in the program will have access to resources like education, technical assistance, and grant writing. Although the hub is open to all state nonprofits, Jeremy Pate, the foundation's home region program deputy director, says there is a focus on nonprofits working in areas of early childhood health and education, food insecurity, and economic stability. Pate says the fields are important because there is federal money state nonprofits are not getting, and says more organizations could gain access. And these are also areas of focus that we have traditionally seen across the state through the foundation's work in various forms and facets. And so we believe um, sort of doubling down in many respects on some of these nonprofits throughout the state would be important. Pate says after two years of the pilot program, a report showing the hub's performance will be published. For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One, I'm Anna Pope. Veterans Health Care System of the Ozarks in Fayetteville, as well as outlying VA medical clinics in the region, are in critical need of volunteers. According to an alert issued by Sue Hess, Chief of the Center for Development and Civic Engagement at the VA, volunteers are needed to serve in multiple capacities, including service desk assistants, patient escort, and emergency room assistant. Volunteers can register online by searching va.gov volunteer or call the local VA at 444-5060. Two Razorback gymnasts are heading to the NCAA National Championships to compete in individual events later this month. Graduate transfer Nora Flatley qualified on beam at last week's NCAA Regional in Norman, Oklahoma, and freshman Lauren Williams will compete as an individual vault performer. And the second annual Format Festival will be on a 240-acre of forest-enclosed green land September 22nd through the 24th in Bentonville. Lineup announced today includes Alanis Morissette, Leon Bridges, LCD Sound System, and Rob Moses. Also, the festival's art program features freestanding and large-scale installations and art-designed music venues. Format Festival, a three-day music event centering on art, music, and technology. In the festival's first year, it attracted thousands of festival goers and contributed about $100,000 to Bentonville Public Schools. The school system is to be the charity recipient again for this fall's event.
This is Ozarks at Large, a new book about a little-known Navy tradition written by a pair of retired professors from John Brown University offers a peek into young sailors' thoughts as the world was at war. Midwatch in Verse by Gary Gwynn and Dave Johnson explores the tradition of the first dock log of a new year on naval ships being written as a poem. Last month, we reached the authors by Zoom to find out more about the book and more about the tradition. Dave Johnson says he discovered the tradition while doing research about something else. And ran into a 1959 article that had been published in the uh, United States Navy Institute's uh, magazine called Proceedings. And this uh, uh, this individual who wrote the, the article was a, a, a retired naval captain, and he described the, the tradition along with a lot of examples that he had run into uh, in his own research. And all of those examples were from the World War II period. And that's really where this where this started. Do, what are the poems about? Are they about ship business? Are they, how does this work? Gary, I'll well, let you take that one. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, an incredible variety of things that, uh, that are included in the poems. Basically the poems are supposed to include some of the basic information that a standard deck log includes and a standard deck log uh, Navy regulations say that certain things should be included. And there are things like the location of the ship, the speed of the ship, destination, uh, where the power is coming from, what boilers are burning. It's all really boring kind of uh, mundane stuff. So the poems are supposed to include some of that basic information, which is one of the things that's interesting about the poems, because this, the young officers who are writing these poems have to work this information into a rhyme scheme. But the fun thing also about the poems is that they go all kinds of other directions too. Uh, they talk about what's happened on the ship, what's going on on the ship. Sometimes they, they, they complain about the fact that this is new year's Eve and all their buddies are celebrating new years and they're stuck on a midnight to 4 AM watch. And the only time of the year that a, a, a deck log can be written as a poem is that very first deck log of the year, the four hour watch from midnight to uh, 4 a.m. And so the guys will complain about being stuck on ship and not having any female companionship and not having anything to drink, you know, no uh, no women, no scotch, the whole thing. And, and so uh, there are certain themes like that that keep returning. And there are also things like the one of the things we found was in, uh, interesting was the American kind of uh, confidence, almost to a cockiness and the, and the assurance that we're going to win this war kind of thing, you know. So, um, yeah, a lot of different topics come up but um some of these guys are really pretty good poets i mean we most of them are just basic rhyme scheme poems uh but some of these guys tried to do some really interesting things one of the poets uh, did a 
parody of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven and wrote it in the same style and kind of uh, structure and used some of the same phrasing as Poe's The Raven, which made it a really fascinating poem. Uh, another one uh, imitated uh, Gunga Dean. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's quite a variety, Cowan. So these were... I would imagine if you're pulling the midnight to 4 a.m. shift on the first morning of the year, you're probably not a senior officer (laughs) on the ship. So these were young men. These are young officers, mostly. Uh, Occasionally, a a higher officer would do it, but they're mostly ensigns and lieutenants, uh, lieutenant JGs mostly. So, yeah, junior grade lieutenants and ensigns, young men. Do were they signed? Do we know the authors of the the poems? Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Decklog. <laughs> yes, we, we do. We do know the authors. Um, that might not be the case in modern in the modern navy. Um, some of that information gets redacted now from modern decklogs. But uh, back in those days, uh, we we did know who those uh, who those authors were. Uh, and uh, that's one of the led to one of the greatest aspects of doing this project, which was that I was able to identify family members uh, of these individuals. Uh, all of the all of the poets of the the poems that we used in our book uh, are deceased. Uh, but I was able to find dozens of uh, family members, mostly their offspring, and um, and I was able to get in touch with quite a few of them and send them copies of their uh, of their father's uh, decalog poem that uh, uh, that he wrote back in the back in the early forties. How they were all all shocked too, and really thankful to get the poem. Oh, I bet. Yeah. How do you find? deck logs from decades ago is it difficult <laughs> um no, yes and no there there's there's a yeah. there many of the world war ii quite a few i don't i don't know if i say many but quite a few of world war ii era deck logs have been digitized by the national archives and there are quite a few that are available online but there is there are limitations uh, there. Uh, so in our case, after getting what we could what we could find online, uh, we hired a researcher who that's what that's what he does. He has a company where his people search the archives for specific kinds of items. Uh, and he was quite familiar with the tradition of of decalog poetry which was great. And, uh, and so he was able to go to the, the ships that we designated and, and asked him um, as part of, as part of our contract with you, we would like the, the new year's day uh, deck logs for these ships in these particular years. And he was extraordinarily uh, helpful uh, even though all of this research he did was during COVID and the archives would go up and down, they'd close, they'd open. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it was it was a bit of a journey. But uh, but, yeah, we, some of them are easy to find. Some we had to get some help. Mm-hmm. 
I'm speaking with Gary Gwynn and Dave Johnson, who are co-authors of Midwatch in Verse, this book about deck log poems. Some of them eight decades old. Was it like you felt like you were reading a time capsule? Oh, boy. I sure felt that way. Uh, you know, that it's, it's amazing that uh, when you read these, you realize you've got this young officer sitting on a ship that all of the ships that we picked were in combat. Uh, so all of them, all of these writers had experienced or were about to experience the combat of World War II at sea. And they're sitting there and what comes out in the poems is the incredible humanity of these young men. They're in a war, the most inhumane uh, experience imaginable and yet their humanity comes out their sense of humor comes out uh, their love of of home and and their love of their ship and so the point that some of these guys didn't survive the war i mean some of the of the guys the poets were later killed in the war and so it was it, it was like reading a time capsule and it was uh, some of the stories were really touching yeah, I would I would add to that. Um, I think Gary might have touched on this uh, indirectly a little earlier um, in terms of the content of these poems. Uh, one of the things that um, since he was our primary poem analyst, uh, he pointed out in the book that that there were transitions over the 1941 through 1946 uh, poems. And so we got a few poems that were 1941, so we're pre-Pearl Harbor. And then we have some from January 1st, 1946. And so they were post-war. Post and, and some of the content of those poems uh, changed over, over that period of time. And uh, Gary mentioned that uh, that some there were poignant moments in some of these poems. And for me, uh, one of the poignant moments came in a poem um, that was from 1946. And it was written by an individual who uh, whose ship was being decommissioned. They were uh, they were in port. The, the ship was being uh, readied to to essentially be scrapped. And he wrote a very poignant poem about uh, the war being over and how he, in his particular case, he was a Navy reservist. And, and about 80% of those serving in the Navy during World War II were reservists. And so they were, they were citizen sailors. And he made a, a very poignant plea to the regular Navy guys who were now going to uh, to, to be left while the reservists were going back to civilian life about taking care of this Navy that, that these civilian soldiers or sailors had, um, had participated in. And, and it was just such a, um, it was just such a poignant moment, uh, where he says, yeah, we did our part. We're done now. Please let's, let's not, you know, recall us back into a fight. Uh, and so he made a plea to the government. He also made a plea to to his regular Navy uh, peers, you know, that that uh, 
take care of what we're leaving. Dave mentioned that there was a, a change over time. And really, the, the most interesting and poignant change to me was the change in tone of the poems. The pre-war poems were just kind of happy-go-lucky, you know, these guys, young officers on a ship. And, and then right after Pearl Harbor, 1942, three weeks after Pearl Harbor, these guys are writing these poems. And now you've got this tone of, okay, you know, they asked for it and they're going to get it. You know, we're going to, we're going to wipe these people out. And, and the, the, the optimism was really quite something because they, they felt like within a year of the war would be over, you know, hmm. we're going to get these guys and they're going to be sorry they did that to us. And then about halfway through the war, the tone becomes much more sober and weary, you know, and the later you go in the war, the tone of some of these poems becomes, by God, we're going to stick this out, you know, and we hope that next year we can make this thing end kind of thing. It was it was pretty touching when, when you realize these guys have been at war for three years, yeah. four years, and uh, yeah. You know, you think of the different elements that are involved with this 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 watch, because the ocean is vast and dark, right? So, so there, there's a, a point of contemplation. New Year's Eve, when you're working, you can become very contemplative about that. And if you've experienced or are thinking that you're going to experience combat, I mean, I can't think of a much more sort of isolated solo time in a young person's life than being on a big ocean in war in the first hours of a new year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that that comes through sometimes. It really does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and a, a number of the poems were were also written while they the ship was docked somewhere, uh, which which presented its its own set of of issues for these young these young <laughs> sailors because here they were uh, here they were docked and they could actually hear their colleagues on shore. <laughs> Uh, having having quite a good time and and frankly uh, uh, fairly frequently uh, well they, they bemoaned that fact but fairly frequently the poems would contain uh, little vignettes of what they think might happen as some of their friends come staggering back to the ship after uh, <laughs> after they've been partying. The, the book we also learn about the ships themselves, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, the book is, uh, each chapter of the book is patterned the same way. The first part of the chapter is a, a history of that ship in combat, uh, what the major actions were and what happened to the ship, which is sort of the story of the ship. And then we do one or more poems from that ship during the war, and then uh, the short biographies of the poets. So you get a ship history, a poem, and how that poem kind of reflects the time and the moment they're in, and then uh, who the writer was. Midwatch in Verse, written by Dave Johnson and Gary Gwynn, available now. We talked with the authors, both retired professors from John Brown University, last month on the eve of a book release event that took place at Ivory Bill Brewing in Siloam Springs. The book, available through all major online booksellers. This is Ozarks at Large.
Walton Arts Center is proud to present the 2023-24 Procter & Gamble Broadway series, including the new musical Six, Stephen Sondheim's Company, Tina, the Tina Turner musical, and more. Subscriptions on sale now and subscribers get early access, discounted tickets, and other benefits. More information at waltonartscenter.org. Tomorrow evening marks the first day of Passover which will extend through uh, the 13th of April. Mm -hmm. There's plenty else going on in the next 24 hours. Yep. The mixtape music series at the Medium in downtown Springdale continues tomorrow night from 7 until 9. Doors will be at 6.30. It's sponsored by Cash, and the performers include Duo Divinas. Yeah, we've had them on the show. Rachel Sanchez-Smith had them in the Furman Garner Performance Studio. Tomorrow, now this is exciting. I said that and it sounded like I didn't mean it, but I do. The State Review Board is going to meet in Little Rock. They're considering properties for the Arkansas Register of Historic Places, including Wilson House and Centerton. Mm -hmm. And the board will review the Van Buren Overpass and Vanita Cemetery in Hackett for the National Register. Yes. Two new murals will be unveiled at Bella Vista Public Library tomorrow afternoon at 3.30. It's on the exterior of the library. It's designed to integrate with the garden areas surrounding the library. A reception for the artist Graham Edwards is also taking place tomorrow afternoon. He's the artist behind the art court and the Love Your Neighbor. Oh, oh yeah. Go to go to art, uh, uh, to Graham Edwards' Facebook page or yeah. website. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, so I love art, that. Yeah, he did the Art Court in Fayetteville on Dixon Street, the big Love Your Neighbor sign that's at the lofts in mm -hmm. Bentonville. I love what he does with color and shape and style. Nice. And today, registra or tomorrow, registration opens for the Natural State Criterium System, system Series. That's where cyclists go crazy speeds yeah. in short amounts of streets in downtown Springdale. I don't want to drive that fast in a car. <laughs> right? I can't watch those. <laughs> but it's very exciting. If you want to do it, there's a you can do it. Just search for Natural State Criterium at runsignup.com. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A Southern Arkansas University coach helped bring women's sports into a new world of intercollegiate athletics after Title IX was passed. Margaret Ruth Downing was born in Waldo in 1931 and cut her coaching teeth in high schools at Monticello, Texarkana, and North Little Rock. After college coaching in Connecticut and at Washita Baptist University, she became the women's head basketball coach at SAU in 1965, recording 223 wins and 163 losses between then and 1984 and earning eight championships. She also coached swimming and diving, volleyball, softball, golf, and track and field. After Title IX allowed more diversified coaching, she developed programs to enhance the newly mandated opportunities for female athletes. She also coached U.S. women's teams in the Pan American Games and was on the U.S. Olympic Committee for Women. She entered the Arkansas Sports Hall of Fame in 2012 and died on January 17, 2023. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Two of the region's most popular podcasters recently met in the Furman Garner Performance Studio at KUAF. Randy Wilburn is the host of I Am Northwest Arkansas, Irvin Camacho, the host of District 3. During their visit, they were guests on each other's program. This week's I Am Northwest Arkansas episode features one of those conversations. They covered several topics, from the importance of podcast role in expanding diversity in local storytelling and, as we hear in this excerpt, what a growing Latino and Latina population in the region can mean for Northwest Arkansas. 
I think uh, specifically there's there's a lot of of jobs here, and that's one of the the driving factors as why people want to come here. Mm-hmm. I know that was the biggest factor for us. There yeah. was more jobs, there was more opportunities college wise as well. And contrary to what some people might might think, this is a very safe place. You yeah. know, it's it's a very safe place. Absolutely. Sure, we have our little our little uh, issues here and there, right? But overall, like, if you compare it to where I'm from. Where I'm from, like we show up on on an episode of Cops, like every episode of Cops has a segment dedicated to my birthplace, yeah, to Salinas, California, yeah, you know, and 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 we come from a place where in our neighborhood there was a lot of crime, gang activity, and stuff. Here, I haven't had any issues myself, right, ever, right, you know, and 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 we're very blessed to be here. But I think what ends up happening is that one relative will move here from someplace in Mexico. And then they'll tell the rest of the relatives who live in either Mexico or California or other states, come over here. There's jobs. Right. Like I, I've interviewed probably, I would say probably 40, 50 people on this podcast where their story has been that. It's yeah. been like, I asked them, how did you get here? And they said, a relative told us that there was jobs, opportunities, and it was a safe place to move to. And that's why we moved here. We just want to succeed. We want to, we want to be able to. As cliche as this may sound, pursue the American dream and Absolutely. live it, you know, and be happy with our families. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. the driving factor as to why you see these uh, populations of, of Latinx folks increase here in Northwest Arkansas and Arkansas in general. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and I want to ask you this because, you know, I get asked this all the time and I know there's been blowback and there's a, there's a little bit of PC about the whole term Latinx. Yeah. Where do you fall on that conversation? Is it acceptable? Is there a better term to use as mm-hmm. far as that's concerned? Because there are a lot of people that struggle with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't, that's not really my focus is, is hey, you're, if you're my brother, you're my brother. You're, you may happen to be of Latin descent, but you know, you're my brother, you're my sister as far as that's concerned. But I'm curious to know, because I know a lot of people struggle in this area. And it's like, well, what, what words should I use? What have you said? And what, what is acceptable in the community mm-hmm. uh, that you're finding? So this is part of the conversation I had with Ro okay. uh, on her podcast. Okay. We talked about this. So it's complicated, right? <laughs> I, I want to start with by saying that it's complicated. And I also want to start by saying that I am not the sole representative of the Latinx community. Oh, I got you. And I'm just like I'm not the sole representative of all black people. <laughs> before That's for I, sure. Before, I get so. the, before we get the trolls up in here. So I use the word Latinx simply because folks from the trans LGBTQ community told me that's the term at that time that made them feel welcome, inclusive, and in the Latino community. So that's why I use it. And also, I use it because, let's say, for example, there's a a room full of Latina women, Mm -hmm. right? It's a room full of Latinas. Mm -hmm. One man comes in, it stops being a a room full of Latinas, it becomes Latinos. Right. Right. So Latinx for me just made sense simply because of the inclusive part, but at the same time, just to kind of find some sort of term that represents us all and that it includes everybody that may use some other type of terms in the future. Sure. But but after saying that, Latinx is not used in our family gatherings. Like my family has never used the term Latinx. They'll use Latinos, Latinas, Hispanics. Those of us, the majority of us that use the Latinx term are not forcing anybody to use it. We're just saying, this is why we use it. This is why it's important to us. Some people use Latinx. Some people use Latin A because it has the E at the end and it's easier to pronounce in Spanish for folks. Yeah. yeah. We're not going to get mad at whatever you use. Just sure. don't, As long as you don't use anything derogatory, we don't care what you call us. 
this is just what we're going to call ourselves. And we don't understand why it's been made a big deal because we're not trying to force anything on anyone. Yeah. But ultimately, the ones that use Latin A or Latinx, we're just trying to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. That's it. doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah. doesn't affect anybody, but it does make someone feel welcomed into our community by us using that term. Okay. That's why. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. So, all right. Well, I will, I will certainly keep that in mind as I move forward, but every now and then it, it does come up. And so I, I just figured it would be worth asking. So it's not a big deal. Only it's not, I, I think only 3% of the Latinx population use the term. And I know a lot of people have said that the other percent hate it, but they don't hate it. They just don't know about it. Don't care about it. Don't have a conversation about it, but it's up to us. Maybe the next generation will use it more. Right. But we're not, we're not here trying to force our parents or folks that are older to use it, we just, you know, we use whatever they want to use. So sure. we don't even use those kind of terms. We don't even use, like in conversations, we really don't talk about Hispanics, Latinos, or anything in our families. We just talk about us yeah, you know, without labels. But they're trying to make it a big deal, but it really isn't yeah, for us. I got you. Yeah. I got you. No, that makes perfect sense. So now, is it, I know you do, you offer a bilingual podcast. How mm. are you able to do both episodes are some episodes in English, some episodes are in Spanish? So we've done episodes in Spanish and the majority of our episodes are in English. But whenever there's someone that comes in that speaks Spanish and English, we'll just change. We talk in Spanish and then we'll just shift to English. But we try to have the majority of the language be English so that folks that don't understand Spanish can still enjoy it. And relate. Yes. Yeah. But the yeah. goal is if someone comes in that's bilingual, we're going to throw in some Spanish in there because sure. we want to keep that bilingual flow going. And sometimes it just comes out naturally without thinking. Yeah. Like I'll be talking English and then I get mad or something and the <laughs> Spanish comes out. Right. You know? Right. So we, we try to do it in that way. We can't go full Spanish just because a lot of the folks that listen to us won't understand. Yeah. And we want to stay true to our roots and include Spanish. So we, like I said, we try to put it in there whenever we have some bilingual guests. We don't want to make anybody feel left out though. Irvin Camacho, the host of the podcast District 3. He's the guest on this week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, hosted by Randy Wilburn. You can hear the entire conversation at IamNorthwestArkansas.com or by downloading it whatever way you get your podcast. And you can also subscribe to or download District 3 at your preferred podcast source. Both of those podcasts can also be found at KUAF.com. Tomorrow, on a midweek edition of our program, Francis Carre, awarded the Pritzker Architecture Prize in 2022, was on the University of Arkansas campus this week. As a kid, I grew the idea to make things better. You know, it started by, by the, the furniture when we were sitting. I was sitting in uh, of chairs that was babbling. If you are babbling, it gets so broken that nails will come out and really pick you, you know your bottom. And I didn't want to accept that. I say, when I become adult, I want to make things better. That conversation, plus a preview of possible proposed constitutional amendments Arkansas voters might have on ballots in 2024. Nearly every day I can look at either a newspaper or online news source and find an article saying 
hey, this is happening and these changes are being discussed. And that is a result of a constitutional amendment. And much more on tomorrow's show at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF and by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. It's the Community Spotlight on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman. Happy to be joined in the Nancy Blair Operations Studio today by Christina Carnatz, Director of Development and Marketing at the Fayetteville Public Library just across Mountain Street from us. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to come over and, and visit with my one of my dear friends at KUAF. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And a big day for libraries, too. It's Library Giving Day, and I got to be uh, truthful, I didn't know this day existed until you called over and let me know about it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So today is Library Giving Day. It's a national effort for people to come together and support their public libraries. And as as we know, it's more important now than ever before to support our public libraries. And today is a great day to join your friends all across the United States and here locally in Fayetteville and Northwest Arkansas. What I uh, have come to learn since I've lived here in this town with such a great library is uh, it's way more than books, especially now more than ever with the expansion of the library. Y'all truly offer, if you can think of it, it's probably over there. It probably is. Yes. I mean, like you said, it's not just books. I mean, we have programming for people from, you know, six months old to, um, you know, as old as you as, as long as you're as alive. Old as you can get. There's yeah, as old as you can get. Right. Um, we have the Center for Innovation. You know, I mean, you can come in and here we are standing behind microphones. We have those two um, that the public can use with just their library card. You don't have to work uh, for a radio station to be able to record something. We have our teaching kitchen, a full blown teaching kitchen. It's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. It's amazing, too. We have a deli. Like, you can come to the library oh, and I'm very eat lunch. well of your deli. <laughs> the Italian Grinder is my favorite. We're with Christina Carnatz, Director of Development and Marketing at Faylib, Fayetteville Public Library. Okay, today, Library Giving Day. How can people uh, support y'all? Right. So today is primarily um, a virtual online effort okay. for, for giving. And so just going to our website, faylib.org, and you'll find everything that you need there. Of course, you can find us on social media, and it'll be there will be posts and links in our bios all day long. So you can find us on Facebook, Fayetteville Public Library, as well as on Instagram. Excellent, excellent. Also, a couple events coming up the month of April this month. Let's talk about those. I believe the first one this Saturday? Yes. Okay. So this is exciting. This is our inaugural Reading the Greens event. Okay. So it is an indoor mini golf tournament. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay. Eight, 18 holes throughout the expansion, and we have teams of four that will be that'll be making their way through it. And then everything ends in the um, event center with our MC Bo Mattingly and DJ Short. Oh my gosh, that sounds very, very fun. Okay, so uh, again, you can find more about that at faylib.org. Then the other one? So Library Amnesty Week is the is the last week in April. So it begins April 23rd through the 29th, I believe. Okay. But if you have uh, been avoiding us over at the library because you have a fine or a book that's been on your shelf that you didn't realize, you know, has uh, that belongs to the library and, and it's hiding there, um, you can bring that item in or or come in and just ask somebody at one of our desks and say, hey, I would I would really like to have these fines erased. And you know what? We'll do that for you. Um, we want you to come back. And you don't have to wear a sack over your head. You don't have to, you know. Y'all 
number one, you'd like the book back, but you also, you want that person to feel good to come back again. Exactly, exactly. We're, we're here for you. The library is here for the community. And, and if you feel like you can't come back, that's not the case. Come back. We, we want it. We're there to serve you. Last week of April is that amnesty week. Okay, Christina Carnett's with the Fayetteville Public Library. Again, all these neat things taking place. Plus, if you'd like to support your local library, today is the day to do it. It is Library Giving Day, April 4th. Christina, always nice to talk to you. Thank you, Pete. The Community Spotlight and KUAF, your voice matters. KUAF is supported by contributing listeners and by business members. The Ozark Society, Ozark Sunrooms, Build a Home Incorporated, Holland Wildflower Farm, and Reed's Tax Service of Eureka Springs. If you'd like to learn more about business memberships and how to become a business member of KUAF, you can visit KUAF.com slash business dash members. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Midland. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Pete Hartman, Anna Pope, Randy Wilburn, and Mark Christ. Additional support was provided by the new staff at KUAR in Little Rock. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Don't forget, we have condensed the traditional on-air fundraiser for the spring fundraiser down to three days. That's right. There was a time when we did 10 days. That was before my time, and I'm glad it was. Yes. (laughs) And we're going to do this with your help. And we want to get to $80,000 by the end of the on-air fundraiser Friday, Mm -hmm. which means we've got less time to do so, Right, but we will do so. Right. We've got some work to do. We're just a hair over $24,000 at this point. Well, at least earlier today. Yes, that's true. I I don't know where we are at this moment. That's true. I don't want to be misrepresenting. Yes, that's a good point. Thank you. Uh, earlier today, we were just over 24000 We'd love to hit 30000 by the end of the day. We can do that with your help by going to supportkuaf.com. We know that the last day or the last day and a half of an on-air fundraiser is always the busiest because we are human beings, mm-hmm. and a lot of us, and I'm looking at me in the mirror, mm-hmm. tend to wait to the last moment to do a lot of different things. When I pay my personal property taxes... It's not in September. Right, yeah. I went and got my, my new tags for my car. My car is due in February. February 28th is when I there went. There you go. <laughs> so we get it. We get it. But that means we've got less time. So there's a sense of urgency here Yeah. because the money that you contribute and listeners like you keeps the programs that you listen to and rely on on the air. It's that simple. The biggest part of our budget pie is you. If you haven't done so yet, you can go to supportkuaf.com. You can send us a check at 9 South School, Fayetteville, Arkansas, 72701. From the Carver Center, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Please be well.